I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. For those who live with mental health issues, one of the qualities necessary in getting well is having persistence. It's needed as patients navigate these three very important and necessary steps. First, coming to the realization that something is wrong. Second, there's the sometimes frustrating process of finding what works to fix the problem. And third, developing the tools to know how to deal with the setbacks when they occur, because they will, and they do. That's just part of the long journey those living with mental illness travel. And throughout it all, there's a stigma that many feel about being labeled or having a sense of shame. It's real in 2020, because although progress has been made, there's still a long way to go. Natasha's here to share her story. Well, uh, Mark, thank you for inviting me. I think... uh the reason I, I am willing to talk to you and I am talking about it, I think it's a, an important story in that people hide their depression, people hide their mental illness because they're ashamed of it. And part of what I did uh, and part of why I have uh, you know, went through so much of it is I didn't share it with friends or colleagues and uh, I just suffered in silence. So uh, my story basically is uh, I've had depression my whole life, or I've had episodes of depression my whole life. I was not diagnosed through several of them because I either didn't realize that I was sick, which look, looking back, in, <clears throat> sorry, hindsight is twenty twenty, and looking back in my life, I could see that I've had, you know, those that I've had a number of periods of deep darkness that, uh, I w- that I never talked about. I never, um, had uh, I never sought help for and I think looking for help when one is feeling so low so dark and one is considering suicide that is a very serious thing so my first um, episode that I remember I was 14 and um, there was a suicide attempt and uh, I was diagnosed with depression and with uh, some kind of other physical issues that um, I was not put on any kind of uh, medication other than for the physical issues. There was uh, no antidepressants. There was nothing of that sort. Hmm. That uh, resolved itself, I think, when I started, you know, when I became an older teenager. And I ended up going to uh, university and uh, I got married at 19, university at 17. And uh, it was a I was triggered there at that time. Looking back, I know that I was in a deep hole. I was sleeping. I had, um, you know, worthlessness. I didn't attend classes, anxiety. I was not in any way um, diagnosed because I didn't look for help. I didn't realize. Mm. It's just looking back at it now, you know, from, you know, from the vantage point of my more mature years, I can see that I was quite sick. I was sick for a number of years at that time. Hmm. What was going on in your life back at that first um, diagnosis or that first experience of crisis? Um, what did your life look like then at home and, and at school? Um, I was 14. I was uh, in grade uh, I was in grade nine. 
And uh, I was just, had no self-esteem whatsoever. I had, I just felt horrible. I just hated myself. Um, it might be, I think part of it was just the normal teenage angst. Mm. But um, through therapy now that I've gone through in the last number of years, through very intensive therapy, I've realized that a lot of my childhood uh, has triggered a lot of the episodes that I have had. It was mm. my upbringing. It was, you know, my mother was a very loving woman, but she had PTSD because she had gone through, uh, you know, World War II. And mm. it's only now that I realized that she had PTSD. So when I was diagnosed with it, I could look at, I, I realized the symptoms, I could see that she had it. And so with PTSD, she had very little emotional control. And uh, so she would be, she was extremely volatile. And uh, as was the norm in Eastern European countries, if you child is misbehaving, you hit the child. So mm -hmm. uh, that norm hopefully is changing. But at the time when I was small, I was hit a lot. I was physically abused. Um, there was, so that triggered a lot uh, into, into my future life. Sure. So, sure. and emotional abuse as well. You know, when you're, when you're being hit, you're being shamed. You're being uh, told you're worthless. You know, how dare you? You're, you're a bad person. You're a bad child. And so that just locks itself into your soul, into your psyche. And so mm -hmm. you're carrying that. And so I think when I became 14, or I turned 14, 13, 14, you know, becoming a teenager, the hormones, you know, going into, you know, getting into high school, I think that was just everything just triggered. And uh, it, I just landed, you know, where I just didn't want to live anymore. And I took a bunch of pills that I had been prescribed for these physical symptoms that I was having. I was fainting everywhere all the time. Hmm. Um, and uh, that was, I just got sick after that. We talked about the stigma that goes along with the difficulty of living with a mental illness. Dr. Christina Iglesia has made it her focus to dispel and tear down the labels that come with depression. She's a licensed clinical psychologist. And in addition to her busy practice, she's also the founder of the hashtag Therapy is cool mental health action campaign. In short, it aims to raise awareness around mental health, and it donates all proceeds to a variety of mental health organizations to help support making therapeutic services more accessible. She joins us from her home city of San Francisco. My hope is that people are continuing to stay up in the scientific world of what treatments are working or are more optimal for specific mental health issues versus many of us who just rely on the trial and error approach, right? I think it's our job as clinicians to continue to be advocating for enough modalities where people can come into our office and say, hey, I'm struggling with depression and we have two or three techniques, interventions, tools that right off the bat, that person can feel relief from. I think that many professionals and providers stick to a very standardized regimen that might work for some people, but are going to be a miss for many people. And so until us as providers take initiative to figuring out what's going on in the medical world, what's going on in the therapy world, and how can we implement that with the people we work with, 
people are going to continue to show up to providers that are just going to write them the same prescription that they write everyone they see and hope that it works for them. Why is the system, in your view, so disorganized? Is it a matter of so many really smart or too many really smart people in the same rooms? Uh, is it a matter of stigma? Uh, why is it so such a mess? I think that there are so many layers. One being until we as a society view mental health on the same playing field as physical health, it will not get the funding. There's not funding in mental health research. There's not funding in mental health care. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was something called preventative mental health care? Mm -hmm. I seem to find it for physical health, right? We can go to our doctor every six months and get a checkup. Where is that for our mental health? We can go to the dentist every six months and get a cleaning, right? That's preventative for our dental care. Where is that for our mental health? In 2020, we still do not prioritize, um, amplify, care about mental health in any way, shape, or form on the same playing field as physical health. And until that changes, people will continue to get sick, people will continue to suffer in silence, and people will continue to die because they won't have access to the treatment modalities that they need. You know, it's interesting to hear you speak because I think that this is a stigma in some ways that exists within the mental health community as well, a community that I've, I've never known any other community. It's the only community I've ever been a part of. I, I tell people mm -hmm. all the time, I have no other transferable skills. This is all I do. So <laughs> Don't ask but, me to change careers. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I'm no rocket scientist. I only do this. Um, but, but the reason why I say that, though, I think because for, for some of us who have been uh, involved with or watching the mental health movement for, for a long time, uh, we're able to identify sometimes unhelpful streams or stigmas within uh, us ourselves or within the space itself. And one of those for me seems to be um, while the wellness industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, um, it's often criticized for such. It's often wellness is often uh, seen as uh, less than or dismissed as fluffy. But in many ways, what you're talking about or many of the things that fall into that wellness category uh are preventative mental health care interventions. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're things that, that are subclinical, uh, but that help mm -hmm. people to feel good about themselves. So what's your mm -hmm. view on the wellness movement, the wellness industry, uh, and, and how we treat that? Yeah, I don't, I choose not to view the wellness industry as all good or all bad, because I think that if you're in the mental health field, you have to be looking at things through the lens of how does this support somebody who potentially is either prone to mental health issues or is experiencing mental health issues. I think that wellness entails this ability for us to be physically, mentally, and emotionally within a baseline where we can be productive humans in the world. And for many people, they are unable to access wellness because of their illness. So they view the wellness industry, right? The clean eating, the yoga retreats, the, um, you know, meditation, compounds as things that they can't have access to because of where they are at. 
other people can enter the wellness arena and know that there are things out there that absolutely could be helpful for their mental health. So, you know, any kind of movement or exercise we already know is a benefit to your mental health. Any awareness around um, nutrition and how you feel your body, we already know impacts your mental health, right? Mindfulness and meditative practices absolutely can be part of a treatment plan. So we can't view the wellness as all good or all bad. It just is about how can we actually make it more accessible to everybody? Because I think what we do know is because it's a billion dollar industry, you have to have money to be able to enter it. And that unfortunately even goes for mental health care that at this time you still need to have some kind of financial flexibility to pay for a therapist, to pay for, um, you know, a Pilates class. These things are not available or accessible to the general public. Mm. Um, tell me more about those systemic barriers uh, yes. to, to mental health, because that's really what we're talking about here, right? If you're yes. um, unemployed or homeless, homelessness isn't a mental illness. Being unemployed isn't a mental illness. But we Absolutely. certainly see higher rates of diagnoses in uh, marginalized communities, BIPOC communities, in, in all ki- LGBTQ communities. Um, so yes. talk to me a bit more about these barriers. What are the systemic barriers to recovery? I think that they are everywhere. We don't want to see it, right? They're within our communities. They're within our healthcare systems. They're within our education systems. We have barriers everywhere we look, and that is why dismantling them is so incredibly important. In the mental health world, the barriers come straight from when you enter the world. Are you getting medical care, right? If your mother didn't get medical care when she was pregnant with you, what does that mean for you when you come into this world? What does it mean if your parent or parents have a mental health issue that they could never get access to care? How would that implement and affect your childhood, right? I mean, these things are just the basic needs of Are we even able to get medical care for people? Are we even able to have food on the table so people can have an opportunity, a minute, a second, to think about their mental health? When you're in survival mode, you're not prioritizing your mental health because guess what? You have to survive. And until we can break down the barriers that are causing people to have to be in survival mode, we're going to continue to see the same patterns of people with depression, anxiety, PTSD, and a whole myriad of mental health issues that potentially, if these barriers were broken down and treatment was accessible, wouldn't be there or wouldn't be as debilitating as they are in our society. Access to treatment is an important issue, but what if that treatment is refused? Natasha says she stopped her treatment in her teens. She went through years of trying to cope with undiagnosed depression and PTSD. Well, I stopped I stopped being treated for depression. I think I was about 15 or 16 at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't have any kind of treatment throughout when I was in college or uh, or married when I had that epi- when I had that episode. Uh, there was no treatment because I wasn't seeking treatment. I didn't realize I was depressed. I didn't know what was right. going on. I was, just, I, I was just existing. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, one of the, the key things is that most people don't realize 
that they, you know, what they're feeling, that they're feeling off, that things aren't right, that you're not happy, that everything is sad, the world is gray, you just want to sleep, or you just want to eat, or you just want to be away from people, that these are symptoms. These are symptoms that there's something wrong, going, something's going on with you, and you need to have this looked at. If you're off your norm, your baseline, and you're feeling low, you should you should be talking to you know having conversations with your doctor. I that's what was happening to me. I was sick. I was quite sick. I spent days in bed. But mm. looking now, I now I see it. At that time, you know, my husband said I was just being lazy. Right. You know, I didn't go to class. I cut classes because I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't face being in in, in class. You know, I didn't do assignments. It was it was my first year at university. My first two years were, were absolutely terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think people around you noticed and didn't know what to say, uh, or they just didn't notice? I don't think they noticed. They just, my, yeah. as I said, my husband said I was lazy. Right. You know, because he was one of these high-energy people, and uh, I was not at the time. And um, it was... And I wasn't being lazy. I just couldn't get out of bed. Right. You know, and that's, I think, you know, part of the stigma of everybody who is who is suffering from depression. Uh, yeah. That, you know, people think, oh, you're lazy, get with the program, get, you know, you know what's wrong with you? You know, just pull, pull, pull yourself up with your bootstraps, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, and that, that's And that's the thing that kills people is that misunderstanding of what mental illness is, of what depression is, what PTSD mm. is, anxiety. Yeah, you know, I've, I've often felt that that's, that's really, we work, um, we try to recover in a system that really doesn't make recovery very easy, but then it, it makes it, it compounds the difficulty even further uh, when some of the core symptoms of the things that we need help for in the first place are things, are symptoms that prevent us from getting help. They, they keep us inside. They make us scared to reach out and talk to others. They make us feel anxious uh, in, in uncertain situations. So it's like the illness itself keeps us ill. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, what broke it open for you this time? What what was the trigger to finally uh, get more help or to, or to start to recover again? So, my last my, this last episode was uh, I was separating from my second husband. This was and it was this separation wasn't going very well, and uh, there was there was an incident of. Uh, terrifying domestic violence um, from him and um, that just pushed me over the edge mm -hmm. and I ended up uh, with PTSD um, and uh, but thing is is that I was not diagnosed with PTSD for about five years mm. so I started so the anxiety and the depression that I was already experiencing that was triggered by the separation because I could see that, you know, that's why it, it happened the first time I was being, I was separating it and triggered this, mm -hmm. this separation triggered it even more so. And with this, uh, and with the incident on the balcony, it, uh, just, you know, pushed me completely over the edge and I just, and it went, it was fast. It was really fast. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was, 
not just you know the symptoms of you know of the crying and the you know the uh, the lethargy and and the pain it was the pain it was the emotional pain i had never experienced anything like this this was a brand new symptom uh it was i was living this pain uh it was sometimes it was so so bad that i couldn't breathe i lost mm-hmm. weight i uh i couldn't work I worked for a couple of uh, months after that, and then that was it. I just couldn't. I wasn't able to work, and I couldn't process any kind of information. I mm. couldn't. I could be in a meeting, and I would. I knew I was in a meeting, but I didn't know what was being talked about in that meeting. Right. And and how I, did your employer at the time react to that? Well, basically, they're saying, you know, you got to pull up. Right. <laughs> you're not. You're not doing very well. Right. Um, did they and, offer you uh, any kind of support in doing that, or it was just kind of a suck it up? Well, I did that whole employee assistance thing, but that six week, six you know, six sessions, I think it was with with a counselor. Mm. Um, I was I went on to short term disability uh, after the incident, mm. and then uh, I applied for long term disability, but they said no, you don't, you're not qualified, mm. you know, or Why? you're not, you know. It was crazy anyway. And the thing is, is that when you're sick, you can't fight. You can't advocate for yourself. You accept anything anybody tells you. And I think that's one of the the biggest, biggest, you know, worst things for anybody that's in a depression. When they need help, they need support. They need, you know, the understanding of people. And they're saying, please. And then you get corporations, you get insurance companies. They're saying no. And when they say no. You're cowed. You're completely cowed. You're you're cowering in a corner, saying, "Okay, no." They, and you're terrified. You're terrified of the world out there. Hmm. Natasha speaks of access to help, care, treatment. It can be a very real hurdle in the road to recovery from mental illness, and that only fuels the problems for those looking for help. Dr. Jennifer Swainson is a general adult psychiatrist in Edmonton, Alberta. Dr. Swainson sees the system at work firsthand, and she knows the frustrations. How often do you and the, and the patient uh, know what you need to do, but then get hamstrung by things that are outside of both of your control? All the time. How, what does that look like? How so? Uh, well, you know, it's there's always challenges in uh, medication coverage. Right. Um, people that, you know, they may not have drug coverage and have to pay for meds out of pocket. Um, that's always that's always a challenge. And, you know, certainly there are a lot of uh, companies that offer compassionate coverage um, and ways for us to access medications for these people. But it, it, it's definitely a challenge um, when people have varying levels of ability to access medications. Um but also, you know, the, the bigger piece is, I think, in relation to therapy. Um, I think you had alluded to it earlier, but, um, you know, most people, it, it's, a very cha- it's very challenging for them to pay 200 bucks an hour to see a, a private therapist. Um, you know, there's, lot, there's therapists within the public system um, but they all have sort of varying backgrounds and, um, you know, varying availabilities. And a lot of times these programs, because so many people need them, um, have limitations that they can only see somebody once a month or 
uh, once every two weeks and there's a limited number of sessions and in reality that's not that's not enough for a lot of people uh, mm. there's there's also a lot of group therapy programs that um, have long long wait lists um, it's hard to get people into them um, difficult to access and so I, I it is a very difficult system to navigate um, you know for for my patients but I think also myself and my colleagues it's something that we sort of look at day to day and and really try to to look at advocating for change but it's it's a struggle how can just as a follow-up on that how can uh i'll ask you about both workplaces and the public system so starting with workplaces how can companies uh improve uh the mental health uh for their for their employees or how can they help employees who are struggling uh uh to to support them better how can how can companies do that mm-hmm. well i think um you know if companies are flexible um you know with work accommodations when needed um you know i've, I've had a couple of patients that work for some very supportive employers that have allowed them to work from home at times um, when they've been struggling um, something even as simple as not having a two-hour commute, you know, each day is a is a big stress relief, and someone's productivity can increase. Um, I think being responsive to um, you know workload concerns and things like that with employees, it's it's sort of the story everywhere, right? Every everyone's busy, everyone's got too much work, um, mm. and it, it's very challenging. Um, what about in terms of benefits provision uh, for the for yeah. their employees? I mean, some companies don't provide any benefits at all. Others, as you've mentioned, might provide a couple of sessions of psychotherapy uh, or limited medication coverage. What, what do you think that, that ideally should look like? What should companies be doing? Uh, you know, I think if, if, if companies had fairly comprehensive uh, medication coverage, that would really help. Um, because certainly if, if someone's sick enough that they need to go on a medication and they're working. It's in that company's best interest to, you know, have their employee get gain access to whatever medication might help them get better the fastest. Um, you know, it can prevent disability. It can increase productivity. Um, so I think the very comprehensive medication coverage is one, um, but also uh, coverage for uh, individual therapy. You know, a lot of companies have their own employee assistance plans that people can access somebody over the phone, but um, full coverage for actually seeing a therapist of that person's choice uh, would be helpful. Natasha, like many people in Canada, is thankful our public system, for all its challenges, was able to provide the support that she needed when she needed it most. Well, Actually, I it was OHIP. It was all covered by OHIP. So uh, public the yeah, yeah. So um, the psychiatrists I had, you know, they're covered by OHIP, and because I had been so ill, you know, it was wasn't a short term fix. I had to be seeing them for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the trauma therapy program at uh, at Women's College that was covered by OHIP. So mm-hmm. OHIP, I've been blessed that I've been able to uh, access it and you uh, use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, not working. Uh, I didn't. I was not able to work for eight years. I was that ill, and so when you can't work for eight years and you're in the middle of your earning cycle uh, of life, um, mm-hmm. 
you're you come kind of come down to uh, you know the uh, the bare bones of existence by you know selling every asset you have kind of yeah you know so uh, OHIP really was there for me and I'm very really grateful to it. That's great. So what what do you do now that gives you and I think we'll leave it here. Um, what do you do now that gives you energy and passion? Uh, how do you channel this now? Well, I've become a mental health advocate. Um, I do uh, public speaking with uh, the United Way during their campaign and uh, and uh, other other events. And um, I'm just trying to get people to understand what mental illness is, what depression is, uh, that it's it's really important that you talk about it. You don't hide it. You don't feel ashamed. You know, you don't hide in the uh, in the bathroom stall at work crying the way I was doing because I was ashamed of how I was feeling. The feeling emotional and feeling um, that when you are emotional, that that's actually a normal thing to be doing. And that um, if you are feeling bad emotion, then you'd find out why you're feeling that bad emotion. So um, I just I just want people to know that uh, hey, you know, if you're not feeling good today, tell your friend I'm not feeling good today. Don't hide it. Stop. You know, we have to stop hiding. You know how we feel. I think that's one of the key things. We have to say I'm not having a good day today. I just need to take some time away from everybody, and accept it. And when your friend says that to you, you say, okay, well, how can I help you? you can't well you know then we'll talk tomorrow and be just be supportive be supportive to people you've been listening to a special episode of so-called normal with mark hennick if you like what you heard share the episode with others you can always follow mark on twitter facebook linkedin youtube and instagram at mark hennick otherwise you might want to check out his website markhennick.com This special series of So-Called Normal has been produced by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford. This episode of So-Called Normal is brought to you by an educational grant from Janssen, Inc. Mark Hennick and the producers of So-Called Normal are solely responsible for the content of the episode and the views and opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Janssen, Inc. The podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition, product, or treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have read or seen in this podcast episode.